Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. Nobody's House by A. M. Burridge They faced each other across the threshold of the great doorway in the dimness of two meagre lights. It was just dusk on a windy autumn evening, and Mrs. Park, the caretaker, had brought a candle with her to answer the summons at the door. Behind the stranger, the last grey light of the day filtered through veils of dingy, low-flying clouds. Between them, the candle flame fluttered in the draught like a yellow pennon, the cavernous darkness of the hall advancing and retreating, like some monster at once curious and shy. The man was tall and broad, and seemingly in the early fifties. He wore a grey moustache and beard, both closely trimmed, and his black velour hat was pulled low down over a high forehead. His overcoat was cut to an old-fashioned pattern, having a cape to it, and it was perhaps this which lent him an air of, even at his years, having outlived his age. He was fumbling in an inside pocket when the door was opened, and he said nothing until he had produced an envelope. I have an order from Messrs. Flake and Limpenny to see the house. Here he offered Mrs. Park the envelope. I am afraid I have called at an inopportune time, but I missed one train, and the next arrived late. Perhaps, however, you won't mind showing me over the place. He spoke slowly and a little nervously, as if he were repeating a speech which he had previously prepared. His voice was very low and mellowed and gentle. Mrs. Park stood back from the threshold. "'Will you come in, sir?' she said. "'I'm afraid you won't be seeing the house at its best. I shall have to show you over by candle. There is no gas or electric light.' He stepped inside and scrutinized her. She was a tall, gaunt, middle-aged woman of the kind which is generally described as superior. Nature had intended her to become matron of an institute. Fate and widowhood— had forced her a rung or two down the ladder. She looked what she was—honest, hard-working, and almost devoid of sympathy. "'I'm afraid,' she added, in her hard, toneless voice, "'you'll find everything just anyhow. I wasn't expecting anybody. Very few people come here nowadays, and a place of this size takes more than one pair of hands to keep it clean. It has been empty a long time, then. Ever since—' She checked herself suddenly. For more than twenty years, I should think. She turned her shoulder upon him, lifting the candle above her head. This is supposed to be a fine hall, and everybody admires the staircase. If the house doesn't find a tenant or a purchaser soon, I hear they intend removing the staircase and selling it separately. There is a lot of fine oak panelling, too. The library. Turning to see if he were listening, she saw him start and shiver, and rub his long, thin hands together. "'Excuse me,' he said. "'I have been a long time in the train, and I am very cold. I wonder if it would be troubling you too much to get me a cup of tea.' "'Yes, I could do that,' she answered. "'The kettle is on, for I intended having one myself. Will you come this way? Perhaps you would like a warm by the fire.' She led the way across the hall and through a baize-covered door at the end. 
turning once to see if she were giving him sufficient light. Mrs. Park noticed that he walked with a slight limp. He followed her down a short passage, through a great kitchen ruddy with firelight, down another passage, and into a small room intended to be used as a housekeeper's parlour. Here there was warmth, even stuffiness. A paraffin lamp stood burning on a flaming red tablecloth. The room was full of hideous modern cottage furniture, and decorated largely with the portraits of people who ought to have known better than to be photographed. He saw at a glance Mrs. Parkin, some kind of uniform, Mrs. Park's mother wearing bustles, Mrs. Park's father in stiff Sunday attire and side-whiskers. But a fire burned brightly in the grate, and a kettle on a brass trivet murmured and rattled its lid. This commonplace room, lighted and hot and over-furnished, was at least a relief from the dark passage and the draughty, gloom-ridden hall. "'I'll give you your tea in here, sir.' and take mine in the kitchen, the caretaker said. Nonsense! Why should you? Besides, I want to talk. Oh, here's the order to view. You see, Mr. Stephen Royds, that's my name, to view. He was running his thumbnail along the sheet of heavily-headed office notepaper. Mrs. Park glanced perfunctorily at the typewriting. So far as she was concerned, an order to view was a superfluous formality. She was more interested in this Mr. Royds, who, having removed his hat, disclosed a head of sparse iron-grey hair. He spoke like a gentleman, but there was nothing opulent in his appearance. He looked an unlikely purchaser or tenant, but for that matter she had never been able to visualise the sort of person whom the house would suit. "'I'll remove my greatcoat, if you don't mind,' he said while Mrs. Park went to a cupboard for another cup and saucer. The room is warm. He laid the coat across the back of a chair. Do you live here entirely alone? Yes. Aren't you nervous? She looked up sharply. Nervous? What is there to be nervous about? I didn't know. Some people cannot bear loneliness. Can you tell me why the house has been on the market all these years? Mrs. Park smiled grimly. "'That's easy enough,' she said. "'It's nobody's house.' "'What do you mean, nobody's house?' "'People who can afford to keep up a great house like this generally want land along with it. There isn't any land. People who don't want land can't afford to keep up a house like this. The estate was sold to Major Skirting. He's a house of his own. He's let the land.' and he's been trying to let or sell the house ever since. I've shown hundreds over, but nobody's ever thought twice about taking it. Strange. It's a good house. But the land. Yes, I quite follow you. To whom used it to belong? Mrs. Park set the cup and saucer down upon the table, with a rattle. A gentleman named Harboys, she said, and suddenly stood rigid, her head a little on one side, in an attitude of listening. "'Do you hear anything?' he asked sharply. "'No. I'll make the tea. I suppose you sometimes fancy you hear things.' She bent over the kettle, giving no answer. He waited until the teapot was full, and then gently repeated the question. "'Hear things?' she repeated with some show of asperity. "'No. Why should I?' "'I didn't know.' 
these empty old houses. I'm not one of the fanciful sort, sir. She let him see that the talk had veered in a direction contrary to her liking. There was veiled fear in her eyes, and, watching her intently, he could see that she was not impervious to loneliness. Here was a woman who suffered more than she knew. She could bluff her nerves by sheer willpower, but this willpower was steadily losing in the long battle. Mrs. Park was afraid of something, and always, in her inner consciousness, fighting against that fear. "'Thank you,' the stranger said, taking the cup and saucer. "'Who was this Harboys? Is he still alive?' "'I couldn't say. Isn't there some story about the house? Uh, didn't something happen here?' "'I don't know. Forgive me. I think you do. There are stories. You don't need to listen.' She spoke jerkily. Once more he remarked that look in her eyes. "'Tell me,' he said gently. "'I can't, sir. If Major Skirting knew I told people, I would lose my job. He'd think I was trying to prevent people from taking the house.' "'It wouldn't prevent me. Wasn't this Harboy supposed to have shot—' "'Ah!' She set cup and saucer down with a rattle. "'Then you've heard something already, sir.' "'A little. You had better tell me all.' It will not affect me in the least as a prospective purchaser. Mrs. Park passed a hand across her forehead. I don't like talking about it, sir. You see, I live here all alone. She checked herself suddenly, finding herself about to admit to a second person something which she never confessed even to herself. Just so, Royd said sympathetically. And you sometimes hear noises. What noises? Oh, it's imagination, she said, or the wind. Sometimes the wind sounds like footsteps and voices, and sometimes I seem to hear it may be a loose door somewhere that bangs. He leaned forward, his eyes shining with the excitement of some strange fascination. You mean you hear a shot fired? he asked, scarcely above a whisper, her one hand resting on the tablecloth contracted nervously. I've known it to sound like a shot. Oh, I don't believe. They say the house is haunted? he asked eagerly. They say, oh, when there's been a tragedy happened in a house, people will always— Never mind what people say. What do you say? The timbre of his voice had changed. Under excitement it had hardened, grown louder. Is the house haunted? There was something compelling in Royd's gaze, in the new tone of his voice. She answered him sullenly, helplessly. I don't know. I've heard things. I tell myself they're nothing. You haven't seen anything? He asked in a low, strained voice. No, thank God. I never go near the library after dark. The library? So it was there. Tell me. Mrs. Park gulped some tea and replenished her cup with a shaking hand. "'It must have been about twenty years ago,' she said in a low and curiously unwilling tone. "'The place belonged to a Mr. Gerald Harboys. He was quite young, not much more than thirty, and very well liked. Some said he was a bit odd, but there was a strain of oddness in all the Harboys. Mad on hunting he was, 
and one of the best riders in these parts. You'll be surprised at the size of the stables when you see them. He had them built. He'd married a young wife, one of the Miss Greys from Hornfield Manor, and some say he thought more of her than he did of his horses. She used to ride too, and the pair of them, and Mr. Peter Marsh from Brinkchurch, were always together. Our boys and Marsh had known each other since they were in the cradle. Whether there was really anything between Marsh and Mrs. Harboys, I don't know. There's been arguments about that for years, but they're both dead and gone now, and nobody will ever know. About one Christmas time, Harboys took a fall in the hunting field and broke his leg, and it was during his convalescence that he got into one of his strange moods. I dare say it was being kept out of the hunting field which brought it on. His leg mended slowly, and right at the end of January he could only just get about with a stick. Mrs. Harboys followed the hounds every time there was a meet in the neighbourhood, and, with her husband unable to get about, she saw more of Peter Marsh than usual. But nobody seemed to know that Mr. Harboys was jealous, or that he suspected anything wrong. Well, one day at the end of January, Mrs. Harboys went out hunting, and her husband brooded all day over the library fire. During the afternoon he amused himself by cleaning a revolver, which he afterwards laid aside on the mantelpiece within reach. Mrs. Harboys came in just after dark. Peter Marsh had been piloting her, and she brought him with her. While she was ordering tea and poached eggs to be sent up to the morning-room, she sent Peter Marsh into the library to get himself a whisky, and tell Mr. Harboys about the day's hunting. He had not been in the library a minute, when angry voices were heard, and then a shot. The butler then burst into the room, and found Peter Marsh lying dead, and Mr. Harboys still in his chair before the fire, staring wildly at the body, with the revolver in his hand. She paused, and in the silence she heard Royd's breathing heavily. His head was bent, and his gaze lowered to the near edge of the table, so that she could scarcely see his face. Mr. Harboys, she resumed, pleaded not guilty at the trial, and said that his mind was a blank at the time when the shot was fired. He couldn't remember anything that had happened between Marsh coming into the room, and then the butler bending over the dead body. His counsel put in a plea for insanity, but the jury would not have it. They found him guilty, and added a recommendation for mercy. The death penalty was changed to penal servitude for life. She broke off, and began to muse. That must be twenty years ago. They let them out after twenty years. He's out already, or soon will be, if he's alive. Slowly, Royds lifted his head, and turned burning eyes upon her face. And do you think our boys did it? he demanded. The question took Mrs. Parker back. Of course. Why? How else could it have happened? There was only those two in the room. It couldn't have happened any other way. Royds got upon his legs. His pale face was shining with little drops of moisture, his eyes aflame with a strange passion. I swear to you, he cried, that I don't believe Harboys did it. I knew the man. Mrs. Park's stare intensified, and she uttered a smothered exclamation. I knew him well as child and boy and man. I was at school with Harboys. 
I tell you, he was incapable of murder. All the circumstantial evidence in the world would not weigh an atom with me against my knowledge of his character. They say he had fits of madness, another lie. But mad or sane, he couldn't have done it. He loved his wife, and Peter Marsh, too. He knew that they were two of God's best and whitest people. I tell you. He broke off suddenly, and lowered his voice. I'm frightening you, he said. I didn't mean to. Oh, but think. This Harboy's been rotting in prison these twenty years, remembering nothing of those few dreadful moments. To this day he doesn't know if he's innocent or guilty. Think of it. Mrs. Park lifted her white face and twitching lips. One hand had stolen to the region of her heart. Each rapid stroke of her pulses seemed to shake her. Why have you come here? she cried in a voice which rose high and querulous with a nameless dread. You don't want the house. You never intended— No, said Royds. I came here to find out. What? They say strange things happen in the library. I have heard stories. You tell me you have heard footfalls, voices, the sound of a shot. Don't you understand, woman? What happened in the library that evening twenty years ago is known only to God. The man who lives remembers nothing. If it be true that Peter Marsh returns— Oh, don't you understand? It is the only way of learning. The only way. Mrs. Park stood up. A slim body made a barrier between him and the door. I can't let you go to the library, she cried sharply. I must. I'm going to spend the night there. I'm going to wait until Peter— I can't let you, she said again. But you must. Don't you understand? This means life or death to a man. She backed almost to the door. It's madness, she cried. Nobody has ever endured that room after nightfall. I will. I shall be sent away if it is found out, she said. It won't be found out. I'll recompense you if it is. Here, I came prepared to pay for the privilege. He tugged a bundle of banknotes roughly out of his breast pocket and flung them on the table. How much do you want? Five pounds? Ten? Twenty? Mrs. Park's gaze lingered on the roll of notes. She knew the value of money. Besides, she was alone in the great house with a man it might be dangerous to thwart. Come, said Royds. Here are five five-pound notes. Take them and act like a sensible woman. Then I shall go to the library, and you will make me a fire. Is there any furniture there? No, muttered the woman, her gaze still on the roll of banknotes. Then, if you will permit me, I will take a chair. He picked up the notes again, and transferred all of them but five to his breast pocket. With these five he advanced and pressed them into the woman's hand. Her fingers closed over them. I'm doing wrong, she muttered. You're doing right. I'll get the truth tonight if I have to summon the devil himself. Now come and help me make a fire in the library. She turned heavily away without a word and went to a cupboard, from the bottom of which she took a bundle of firewood and an old sheet of newspaper, which she dropped on top of the contents of the half-filled scuttle. Then she lit a candle in a brass stick and motioned him towards the door. He picked up a chair as he followed her.
The house was very still as they passed through the kitchen and passages, leading to the hall. Their footfalls on the uncarpeted floor rang out sonorously through the hollow shell of the house. To the woman, the shattering of a silence which seemed almost sacred was a new weapon put into the hands of terror. Her overstrained nerves cried out in protest at each of the man's heavy steps. Around her, in the shifting penumbra beyond reach of the candlelight, above her in the empty upper chambers of the house, all manner of sleeping horrors, shapeless abominations of the night world, seemed to waken and listen and draw near. The silent house seemed full of stealthy movements, and each blotch of darkness was an ambush, peopled by the awful phantasms of her mind. The man walking behind her seemed to be without nerves, or he had so stimulated them as to bring them entirely under his control. Evidently, he knew the house, for he passed her in the hall, taking the lead in the procession of two, and went straight to the library door, which he flung open and passed on the crest of the following candlelight. The library was a long room in an angle of the house. A long row of windows fronted the hearth, and two more faced the door. The walls were of oak panels stained a mahogany colour, but in that dim light they looked black, as if they were hung with funereal trappings. The man lingered between the door and the first of the windows, while Mrs. Park, half closing her eyes, hurried across to the fireplace with the scuttle. He seemed to be searching for something. Presently he found it. There's a hole in one of those panels, he announced. Mrs. Park's heart gave a leap. Yes, she stammered. It's a a bullet hole. The shot lodged there after, after. Yes, he said quietly. I understand. He crossed the room with a chair, and set it down at that corner of the hearth which faced the door and the damaged panel. And that afternoon, over twenty years ago, I was sitting here. There was a crash as the scuttle fell from the woman's hands. All her horror and amazement expressed itself in one thin, muffled scream. You were sitting there! You! Gerald Harboys! Gerald Harboys, the murderer! He answered quietly. Gerald Harboys or Stephen Royds, God help me, what does it matter? Murderer or not, only God knows. But I shall learn tonight. Light that fire, woman, and then leave me. She left him and stumbled blindly back to the little vulgar room behind the kitchen. But her fascination, stronger than terror, drew her back to the outside of the library door, there tremblingly to wait and to listen. Harboys, to give him his real name at the last, settled himself on the chair, and at first busied himself with the building up of the fire. Then he took a revolver from his coat pocket, and placed it upon the mantelpiece within his reach. This done, he looked out across the room with a steady gaze. The firelight wrought strange patterns among the shadows, but in the swiftly changing measures of the shadow dance he found nothing of what he sought. Presently he began to speak aloud, quietly but very distinctly, so that the shivering woman outside the door 
brought her hands to her tightening throat. Peter, Peter, the tone was almost wheedling. Can you hear me? I'm sitting in just the same place that I sat that evening, with my bad leg resting on a stool. Here am I, and here's that damned revolver. Now, Peter, won't you come? They say you're always here, that you can't rest because your best friend shot you. Did I shoot you, Peter? My mind's a blank, a blank. For twenty years I've been trying to remember. I have not known peace day and night for twenty years, Peter. Oh, come and tell me. I want to know, to know. There's something wrong, Peter. I couldn't have done it. How could I have shot you, boy? He relapsed into silence, his gaze never leaving the space between the door and the first window. After a long minute, his voice broke again, choked and almost tearful. Is it because you hate me that you won't show yourself, Peter? Was I mad? And did I do it after all? Don't hate me, Peter. I've suffered. Have pity. One way or another, I want to end this agony tonight. Oh, God, make him merciful to me. Peter, we'd been friends so long. School. Don't you remember, Rivon? And those long talks under the lime trees and the close on summer nights and study teas and then going up to Lord's? He babbled on while kaleidoscopic pictures passed before the eyes of his memory. Cool, dewy morning, and the cricket eleven tumbling out of houses for fielding practice, rows of languid boys in dim classrooms and a scratching of pens, bright sunlight and white shapes moving on a green sward, crowded touchlines, and the scrum forming, and goalposts standing up stark against a grey November sky. In each and all of them he caught a wavering, vanishing glimpse of Peter Marsh. Peter! he cried out again. Can't you hear me? Won't you come to me? You do come back. They all say so. That woman hears you. You in your scarlet coat, as you came in that evening, I remember. When I saw you lying there, the blood scarcely showed. I was sitting here waiting for Muriel. I heard you both come up the drive. Muriel was laughing at something. You were both talking to the groom outside. Then I heard you in the hall. Muriel ordered tea and went upstairs. And I thought, she doesn't come in to see me. I'm nothing to her now. I'm crocked. It's all Peter, 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 by God. I said, I've been blind as well as lame. The things I've seen which they pretended were nothing. The things I haven't seen, but heard of in whispers and hints. All in a moment my brain caught fire. Damn you! I said, I'll teach you to fool a lame man. Then you came in. The trembling woman outside heard him utter a hoarse cry. Peter! Peter! Oh, God! I'm beginning to remember. You stood where you're standing now, touching the handle of the door. That's right. And you said, I remember now. Give us a peg, Jerry. I'm frozen. There's a devil of an east wind. Peter! Peter, don't look like that. I'm remembering. Remembering. Oh, God! Have mercy! Have mercy on me! 
A hoarse scream echoed through the room. A chair reeled over with a crash, and then followed a frenzied shouting. I remember! I remember, damn you, when you turned your back on me like that! A shot rang out. Then another. Then silence enfolded nobody's house, and its one living inmate, a fainting woman who clung to the oak balustrade. It was half an hour later when Mrs. Park forced herself into the library. The red glow of the fire was still dancing on the walls and floor. For a moment, one ruddy gleam seemed to take a fantastic shape, like the prostrate figure of a man in hunting pink. Arboys lay crumpled and face downwards across the hearth, the revolver still in his hand, the ugly wound in his temple mercifully hidden. To that end, had he remembered. Where there had been a bullet hole in one of the panels, the police next morning found two. They were side by side, and scarcely an inch apart.